Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Now in its 47th year, New Directors New Films offers a selection of compelling work from other festivals from around the world. With only a handful of US and European titles, this year's selection references a wide variety of genres and national cinema traditions that are often overlooked. To discuss our favorites, I was joined by Devika Girish, and I'm a contributor to Film Comment. And Nicholas Rapold, I'm the editor in chief of Film Comment. To assess the strengths of this year's edition, here's our conversation. All right, and uh, today we're going to be talking about new directors, new films. And of course, because we're all really interested in the business side of things, we're only going to be talking about the winners. Which ones are these are going to make the most box office? Who is making deals? No, wrong. That is not what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about things that really caught our eye. Wait, we're not talking about box office? Well, my money's on an elephant sitting still. It is a four-hour movie (laughs) that is subtitled, (laughs) has no stars. I think that's going to be huge. But um, Blockbuster. Yeah. So... Tell us about Our House, Violet. I know you're a big fan of Our House. Well, gee, it's probably my favorite thing that I've seen. Our House, it is a Japanese film. I guess it's like a senior thesis project for this filmmaker who had studied with Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And it's it's set in this little seaside Japanese town. It is um, about this teenage girl and her mother who live in this house and sort of the changes that she's going through. And then in the same house, seemingly, this woman who's maybe in her 30s who takes in this woman who also in her 30s can't remember her name. And it's like this very, there, there are these two parallel lines of stories in the same house. And you and eventually, you know, the stories sort of start intersecting more and more. And there's this doubling, you know, because uh, the film, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to say every Japanese film is like influenced by Ozu because that's terrible. <laughs> it's like really annoying, but it is sort of, you know, it is a traditional Japanese house. So it is, there are certain things that certain visual things you might recognize from other more famous Japanese films going on. But I think of when, you know, they're eating at, you know, a low table and the director just has such an incredible eye putting these women into this mise-en-scene in a way that it's so precise and very beautiful. And then, you know, weird shit happens. And that's, I am also into that. Yeah, I I, I found it really uh, compelling. It's it's totally fair to bring up o- Ozu. What's interesting is that the, you know, the structure of the house and, and the echoes of shots here are used to kind of encourage the sense of uncanny a bit more, or mm-hmm. a sense of slippage kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's a domestic space, but it quickly becomes a very mysterious space as, as well. And that's really powerful. And I think the way that it just proceeds through that mystery um, also feels fresh and, and uh, organic. Uh, Imogen Sarah Smith wrote about it on, on the website and, mm-hmm. and in a very nice way, uh, also talking about this theme of how it uses the domestic space and uh, comparing it with Drift, which is another film in New Directors. Mm-hmm. Drift is truth in advertising. It is, <laughs> it is a movie about uh, a tactile and psychological and geographical drift. Um, it, it centers on two women who 
who are close. It's centered on, but also decentered, you know, because they they go separate ways. You know, one has to pursue some sort of art project, as far as I could understand. It's not a movie that's very like, you know, forthcoming about uh, you know people's uh, the details of you know why people are doing things or what's happening. In fact, at a certain point, for you know, I want to say almost twenty minutes or twenty five minutes. Uh, total, you're you're watching waves uh, and this kind of this hypnotic, you know, footage of waves. So the movie is also kind of a trance film in a way, in, in that it's 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 very um, biorhythmic when you're watching it. It's a little bit like the opening for Time Regained, the Raoul Ruiz and the credit sequence, mm-hmm. uh, where I, it's it's just a favorite of mine. Where he, it's a shot of a stream, um, but he he does something just in the angle or a slight movement of the camera that suddenly makes you feel like you're in one of those dissolves into a dream sequence, you know, <laughs> in, in the kind of old fashioned way. And yeah, that's, that's, just, I don't, I don't want to, I guess you could also talk about drift. Like these are, you know, globalized, you know, thinkers or artists who, who are, and, and everyone's disconnected, but I didn't, I didn't feel that as much. Um, it definitely almost had, um, Almost was drifting away from me as, as a movie, but I, I you know, I thought it was interesting. But um, the other thing I want to mention is that Helena Whitman, who's the director of Drift, shot another movie in New Directors. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of truth and advertising, uh-huh. closeness, mm. um, which is set in the kabardo balkarian region of Russia in this province called Nalchik, where the director is from, and it centers on a close-knit Jewish family. The protagonist is the daughter who is this really, I hate using the word feisty, but she she <laughs> is a feisty uh, tomboy who, uh, you know, she's a mechanic and she helps out uh, with her father's garage. Her name, Ilana, and... Uh, about 20 minutes into the film, her brother and his fiance get kidnapped and they receive, the family receives a ransom note and sort of the rest of the film is them trying to, you know, somehow find a way to pay off that ransom. And in that process, you know, the film explores a lot of things such as the religious uh, sort of conflict uh, and ethnic conflict that characterizes that region, you know, between Jews and the Kabardian Muslims. Mm -hmm. And Ilana has a Kabardian boyfriend that her family disapproves of. So, you know, that's a constant source of tension. And also what kind of emerges uh, from the events that happen after the kidnapping is that she's clearly sort of a second citizen in their household. And she's asked to make really great self-sacrifices in order to get her brother back, including being subjected to a forced marriage. Mm. The film sort of explores all of these things, uh, you know, through the sort of in the aftermath of the kidnapping. And um, it's shot in like a four is to three sort of boxy ratio that emphasizes, you know, the closeness of the title. Mm. It, It really is a film that, you know, it reminds you of its title in like every scene and sort of every sort of thematic, um, also like layer. Um, and, you know, there's also the brother and the sister also have a weirdly close semi incestuous relationship. Mm-hmm. And she is, and, and they also explore like how close the Jewish community there is, but at the same time, you know, no one's really, uh, going out of their way to help these people. And, uh, yeah, I mean, have any of you seen it? Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I really like Closeness. I saw it at Cannes last last spring. I just, I really like the energy of it. It's one of those movies where you just, uh, you feel kind of excited, definitely for the first half, just riding along with this director uh, 
who found a performer who can really pull the screen. And yeah, I, I have to agree. I guess she is feisty. But but what's interesting is that because this is a, is because it's a community that's really traditional in many ways. Uh, you know, I, I guess they seem to run a kind of auto shop or something like that. Yeah, like a body shop. Or something. Yeah, yeah. This kind of phenomenon of like having really strong personalities, but it doesn't actually mean you have a lot of autonomy. You know, mm. so that that kind of constant friction that you can't really totally express yourself and, and follow through on, on what you want to do. And so she, so the the main actress is. Just, just kind of like a bundle of energy, just wanting to do and 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 to you know go forward with her life, but but can't really. Um, I mean, so there's almost something. I'm not sure. I have a vague memory that maybe she is actually originally a dancer or something. But there's definitely something a little tightly wound in a kind of dance-like way about her. And yeah, I mean, the camera work is is can be often impressionistic, sort of you know, off kilter framing sometimes or showing people in like very straightened circumstances. Um, I was reading some interview, I guess, around the time of Canada, right after that, the title translates maybe something to more like crowdedness. Or just Narrowness. Kind of, yeah, something yeah. like crowdedness. Um, I did try to interview him when I was there, <laughs> which is its own story that I don't really have to go into because people have all sorts of reasons why they may not be able to make an interview a couple of times. <laughs> um, but at any rate, I'm uh, glad that we are interviewing. Actually, I wanted to just talk about one aspect of yeah. the film. Um, at some point, there's a group of uh, youngsters in the film who are watching this very graphic clip from a massacre in Chechnya. And the film is set in 1998, so it's, it's kind of topical. And I read a lot of reactions that kind of condemned the director for making this like ethically indefensible choice to include this real clip of, uh, I guess, people getting killed or, or tortured. That Someone gets beheaded, I think, right? Or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I, I found it very hard to watch. I mean, I, I was basically like watching through my fingers. Um, but I was also just surprised by that reaction because, I mean this stuff is out there, you know, it's, it's on YouTube and social media. And I think the director, I think the way he does it without really contextualizing it too much. And it's just sort of there. Um, I thought it was sort of used very well to, it felt more than a physical death. It, it really felt like, and it felt like a black hole in the middle of the film. And, mm. um, it definitely, I think it worked in establishing also the, this like political conflict that's sort of looming over the film, like it's um, casting its shadow over the film, but not explicitly like invoked. So, mm. yeah, I, I mean, I thought uh, I thought I handled it adequately. Um, I mean, I, I was I was disappointed in uh, maybe one of the reviews you're talking about that basically used that scene as a way to dismiss the film. Um, and, um, I thought that was unfair to the filmmaker and the, and the filmmaking. Um, I mean, it's easy to say, you know, there is atrocity footage. I think that's shocking. Therefore the filmmakers are irresponsible. I'm going to condemn them, but that's simplistic. So I, I, yeah, I've been disappointed by that reaction as well. Totally understand that people are shocked by beheadings. It's not something I see every day. Um, but you know, maybe that's why it's in a drama <laughs> where people have really difficult lives uh, and are up against historical forces that are, you know, pretty grim. And it's yeah, 
just so it doesn't sound even worse, uh, they're, they're, I guess they're sort of adolescents or 20 year olds because you said yeah. youngsters. So it kind of, makes oh, yeah, it sound sorry, like that's me. They were, yeah. they were, they were toddlers. Just no, sort of, you know. <laughs> no, they're um, like probably in their 20s. Yeah. Or something. And, and, yeah. and, and, and yeah, they're, they're probably not taking it as seriously as they can, but they're supposed to be kind of, you know, numb. I think they're getting high too. It's, yeah. you know, no one, no one's like turning cartwheels about this footage being right. on, on, on the screen. I mean, they do break into sort of a big argument and after they, yeah, it and they do an engage argument. with it. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, not to go on about it, but it's also like to go along with the idea of closeness, it feels like it's something that the movie, that their lives can't even contain, you know, like it's contained in this box, it's in front of them, but it, it, it can't, you know, and so, yeah, people will get angry about, I might mm. get angry about that, but um well, speaking of containment, several of the films that I've seen deal with it, none more overtly than The Guilty. This is a film from Denmark about a police dispatcher at a 911 call center. I'm sure they have some other three-digit number they call in Denmark. I don't know what it is. Not touched upon in the film. I'm sure it's better as well because everything's perfect in Denmark. Yes. Well, (laughs) not so. Not so. Because if it was perfect, then why would you need police? (laughs) No. No. Anyway. There go my Denmark retirement plans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No. (laughs) Yeah. Cancel. Yeah. Give back those tickets. Lost a down payment on that treehouse. Yeah. Um, so it's, this guy gets, a he's a police officer who's doing his rounds at this call center, this 911 call center. And he gets this, um, you can tell he's not happy with his job or his duties there. Uh, he wishes he was out, you know, getting the bad guys. And he gets a call from this woman who's being abducted. And then as they try to figure out more about, you know, what car she is in, they find out, oh, she was abducted by her husband they find out, you know, he calls her children who are alone at home. And then just crazy stuff happens. But I was not crazy about this film, I have to say. Why but, not? Why don't you like watching uh, a person in a room talk to the air? <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt like it could have been a play. Like, I, felt this, I was like, and there are certain... I mean, I understand it's a gimmick, right? It is, it is a thing where it's like, you're only in this room and you have to imagine these horrible things happening. But I just... I don't know. Maybe I've just seen too many movies. I'm jaded. I don't buy this anymore. I'm not entertained by this sort of thing anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. I, when I watched it, I was, you know, it was so thrilling to watch. And I I do like thrillers Mm -hmm. um, and like genre movies. So, you know, I was was like nail biting and I personally didn't see, you know, the twists coming. So I was kind of, and I was lapping it up. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did kind of cool off on it later because... It is pretty straightforward. I think it's very well executed mm-hmm. as as a study of genre. I think it's interesting because it's kind of pairing this template of a thriller down to like very basic elements. Mm-hmm. And for instance, something I really enjoyed was how like after a while, you know, it, it's the red flash of his hotline and the vibration of his phone. They become these like really sensory sort of jolts and you kind of get conditioned to the rhythm of the film too that way. Mm-hmm. And so I enjoyed it. But yeah, I it is very straightforward. It's kind of this like a one trick pony. Mm-hmm. I would like to say one thing that I appreciated the director for was there is this, uh, there's like a subplot or, or the backstory to the protagonist is that, you know, he is a cop who is relegated to uh, emergency dispatch because of some police brutality style incident. And what I liked was, you know, how the film contends with that and 
it do- doesn't redeem him, but sort of forces him to reckon with it. And yeah, because yeah, he, he definitely does things that are totally unethical. Right. During the course of the film. Um, and the, you, there's also sort of this looming. I mean, this I also felt like this was a gimmick. Sorry, but the, the, that like his big uh, police brutality trial is like the next day. It's like, OK, come on. <laughs> But, but yeah, it was, it was interesting to see that in the mix, especially in like a film in Denmark where things are ostensibly perfect and we have so much to learn from them, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a, you know, solid thriller. I, I mean, I, I kind of like the idea that, that the narrative is, is going to happen, but you won't feel like it's out of your control you know, it plays upon your expectations that the narrative is going to unfold, but it won't feel like it's out of your control. Obviously, the story that's on screen is always out of your control. Mm-hmm. But here it really makes you feel that more because it's his story as well. That's kind of out of, out of his. So for me, this was partly a movie about um, a control and, the, the you know, pleasures and pains of, of, of that watching a movie un- unfold. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely it can be a little hokey in like a acceptable genre way. Funnily enough, it actually... I saw this at Sundance, reminded me a little of a virtual reality project I saw at Venice because they had a big showcase of uh, virtual reality for the first time they had a competition. And one of the projects they showed was, I don't, I don't think it was even necessarily a new one, um, but it was also based on on uh, Emergency Call Center. Um, but it was very visually interesting and it, it used CAD type drawings. It's very mm. like stick figure sort of drawings. Uh, so what would happen is you would hear calls, and I think they might have been from actual transcripts of you know some sort of stalking, you know, terrible thing uh, unfolding, and then it, things would sort of take shape as it was being described to you on the screen, but still tantalizingly, it wouldn't be entirely clear, um, and it was very chaotic. You just see like the the outlines of things. You know, it's as if you were playing one of those Apple IIe games from the eighties <laughs> or something, all in like red. So there was one use of this kind of material that was pretty visually compelling. But I don't know. I guess I, for for the guilty, most of the time I would I didn't think about the fact that it was just a guy in a headset, even though that usually does bug me, especially when it's on the sidewalk, people in their headsets <laughs> walking into you. I just believe you should be in your space, be where you are. <laughs> anyway, we can talk about Ready Player One. You want to talk about? <laughs> <that>? <laughs> I keep I keep looking at stills from that, and it makes me anxious and ill. <laughs> but yeah. Um, um, do we want to talk about Good Manners, another yes. film that is sort of playing with genre and our yes. expectations? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love Good Manners as my like genre cinema, as I already mm-hmm. said, and especially fantasy. And it just, it's not just like a play on genre cinema, it also kind of mushes together yeah. many genres. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like in a way that I think you wouldn't expect, like it's, almost not it does it like very not seamlessly like it's not seamless in a very deliberate way and the Mm -hmm. plot takes some uh drastic sort of swerves um that I thought worked very well were very tongue-in-cheek anyway the the plot sort of starts off as a social drama and there's this wealthy white pregnant woman named Anna who hires this uh, poor sort of broke black nurse named Clara uh, to be her maid while she's pregnant. And, you know, initially it's about them sort of connecting and across this chasm Mm -hmm. of class and race that separates them. Um, Yeah. And then it turns into a lesbian romance. Mm -hmm. um, And then it takes 
sort of a supernatural turn. And this, uh, I don't know, should I give spoiler alerts? Do people who come to new I directors, new know. films care about spoilers? Okay. No. You know, uh, it, Clara notices that Anna uh, sleepwalks during the full moon every month. This one night she sees Anna, you know, she's sleepwalking. It's a full moon night and she sees her sort of rip apart a cat and drink its blood. And by this time, you probably know what's up. But soon, a werewolf baby claws its way out of Anna's stomach, killing her in a very graphic fashion. Mm -hmm. And this is just the midpoint of the film. So then, you know, Clara just cannot bring herself to kill the little monster. So she adopts it and raises it in a different part of the city, you know, and uh, she raises it as a boy named Joel. And so the rest of the film is then like a coming-of-age film crossed with like a creature feature. So yeah, as you can imagine, lots of sort of variations and uh, stylistic uh, sort of changes and tonal changes. But it still feels there's a very deliberate sort of aesthetic to the film. It felt coherent to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not very explicitly so, but the film does kind of bring into focus some, um, it, it kind of roots all of these uh, different sort of generic templates within the sociocultural sort of issues and makeup of Sao Paulo. Not, not, it's not super foregrounded, but, you know, it does, I think, very gently and deftly touches upon class and uh, race and sort of other urban schisms. Mm. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it. It has a lot of, it is constructed sort of an homage, as an homage to the various uh, genres it plays upon. Um, definitely inspired by Jacques Turner and, uh, you know, there's like this Disney fairy tale aspect to it and sort of hand-painted matte backdrops. There are some musical sequences. There's mm -hmm. a flashback sequence that's entirely done like in the form of paintings. So yeah, there's just a lot going on, but it's very fun and it, it never felt haphazard to me. Nick? Yeah, I, I, I saw this at, in the Locarno and just interesting to think of how films work in different festivals. Uh, I guess it sort of serves a similar purpose here, but there they they definitely fancy having a, a, a little bit of uh, you know genre you know luridness uh, in the mix and i think this served it well but while also having brazilian uh, tradition of plugging into the, uh, the you know the body and, and um, you know cannibalism and uh, and then all that weaving into dialogues about race and, and, and class uh, yeah i mean it's 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 i think it's a movie that successfully feels fun and you know because they're in the first half uh there's certainly like vicarious thrill at seeing that you know maybe the the spoiled young woman who's hiring the other woman as a nanny that she's going to somehow take a fall mm -hmm. um, but th things get more complex than that as, <laughs> as devica just described but there is that that kind of uh, lurid run up to it a bit but yeah a lot of forbearance required of mm -hmm. people in, the, in this movie. But, but Violet, you, you saw this too, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you're a big um, Brazilian cinema. I'm a Brazil nut. Brazil yes. nut. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I thought it was, it was definitely taking these issues of race and class in Sao Paulo. And, you know, obviously this young woman lives, the rich young white woman lives in this giant glass condo. <laughs> um, and that's sort of part of the humor comes from whenever they go outside into this insane neighborhood, it looks insanely fake. It looks like a weird set, but that's also how those neighborhoods look. But I, there were times where I felt like it was definitely, it could have pushed things a little bit further than it did. And it was 
taking these hot button social issues and then kind of not dealing with them, not taking that extra step and being like kind of truly daring. Cause I don't think it's just enough to sort of like show these things, but then to actually like go for it. I, I do like the idea that, you know, it's made the film is ultimately more about this woman raising a werewolf monster baby, <laughs> you know, uh, and the troubles that come to that. That's, that's interesting on paper, but there's sometimes where I was like, eh, this is kind of going a little long. I kind of mm. know, Again, maybe I'm just jaded. Maybe I've just seen too many more. No, I, I, I mean, I think it's... A, sorry, Debbie, what were you going to oh, say? Oh, I, I was just going to say that I, I felt that too. I felt like it touched upon these issues maybe a little superficially. But, mm. you know, I was reading an interview that they did actually with Film Comment. And mm. they talked about their approach to filmmaking sort of coming from going to video stores and seeing Brazilian cinema grouped under national cinema. But, like, seeing Western cinema have so many genres. And I mm. think... Maybe that was almost a, I felt like that was almost a conscious sort of resistance to that, like making it an unabashedly genre film and, and not necessarily a sociopolitical document, which I think right. films from certain parts of the world like have the pressure to, yeah, you know. Absolutely. But I mean, I also think that genre films can definitely have those social right. political commentaries. There's obviously a great tradition here. And then there is also in Brazil, like people like Coffin Joe who are sort of doing crazy weird things or, you know, even like underground Udi Grudi guys were definitely doing that too, but just trying to sort of judge it on its own, like its own footing. It, again, right. it was sort of like, eh, okay, like it's all right. <laughs> I'm not going to say I hated it. You know, it was, it was definitely fun. And like the monster baby puppet is so good. <laughs> I really loved it. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I know what you mean. Like, there, uh, you know, it sounds strange to say, but there is definitely something a little bit prim about it and mm. so slightly, you know, intellectualized. And yeah, that their affair, even like that they love each other, is just like them kissing and then there's nothing right, beyond yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they use that and they move on into something else. Uh, mm. I mean, you, you know, rattled off some previous films in, in Brazil. Yeah, I think earlier efforts like this uh, were felt more raw and, and, mm -hmm. and like something more was risky or at stake now. This, this, I'm sure the filmmakers would never like to hear it, but it's, it's what, what can you do? Other people made movies before you. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. But, uh, but, but, um, but I mean, w one thing that is interesting, just so we can, you know, say, say something about exactly what it's doing with genre. I, what I like is that if the genre you're working with is say like one of these where genres, <laughs> you know, in this kind of metamorphosis genre. It's that they, they like, Devika, as you observed, like half of this stuff happens like in the first half of the film, then it says, well, what happens after that? Right, right. So that's, so it's because most of these movies, you know, I don't know, the thing maybe dies or, or, or you have one last fright shot and you cut to credits, mm -hmm. but here it's like, what's the aftermath? So for that, for me, there was like the really effective thing, right. which is that you're using the unimaginable in an already unimaginable genre mm -hmm. to, 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 to see how, what is the path we actually chart forward for these, for very different people that just have this legacy, i.e. where baby, uh, <laughs> to, to deal with, which, you know, yeah, if you want to make it like a metaphor, an allegory, it's just like all our inevitable interconnectedness and, you know, race being a construct that's imposed mm -hmm. on things, but we're actually just people and living beings and what do we actually do? Mm -hmm. um, and it ends, doesn't it end with like a popular revolt, basically? It sort yeah. of it ends with a riot. Yeah. It ends with a riot. I, yeah, right. the final you know? frame, I mean, maybe a bit of a 
bit of like a I wouldn't say cop out, but like a, almost a very tidy ending. But yeah. you know, it was it was the only press screening I attended that had like applause after the film. And it was just such a rousing. I right. You know, I as I said, like I was just I enjoyed it so much, and I wanted to kind of just clap as well. And yeah. it, it it is that that trope of like the peasants, the villagers against this monster. But right. yeah, um, yeah, it ends with kind of. Uh, the werewolf baby and the mother just embracing their otherness, maybe, and mm-hmm. uh, against this mob uh, of people who want to tear them down. So, right. Even though this is a werewolf baby, he is ultimately this son of insane privilege, right? And that you know, it is like, what are you actually? What's what's more offensive, right? What what can't you live with? But... All these privileged werewolves, aristoc- <laughs> aristocratic vampires. <laughs> What are we gonna do with all this? Yeah, we, we, there should be more of that. Just more of that aspect. But Great Buddha Plus. Great I would love Buddha. to hear about Great oh, Buddha yeah. Plus from yes. someone else. Yeah. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. Just um, a change of pace, more of a satirical, comedic kind. Yeah, of. and also kind of has uh, some drastic, I think, swerves, or not as drastic as Good Manners, but it does, you know, take some turns that you don't see coming. It kind of, I guess, it starts out with. The focus is these two characters, um, Pickle and what's, Belly Button. Yes. Adorable names. Yes. Anyway, and they're, you know, Belly Button works as a... They're kind of cat names, aren't they? Yeah, they really <laughs> okay. are. Or, I, know, or, I, mean, I also yeah. wonder what they are untranslated. That, yeah, that's the thing. There's so, always a translation. Yeah. Um, but Belly Button works as like a security guard to this rich... I think he's like an a, a sculptor artist or designer, and uh, Pickle is just just kind of this semi homeless guy who collects bottles of the street, uh, presumably sells them to a recycling plant or something. And um, they start getting together every night and watching this dash cam footage from Belly Button's boss, mm. uh, which is I guess this this camera attached is that a real thing yes there's a whole movie of dash cam footage from russia which is just like like i swear i was talking with somebody about this a few weeks ago that it's like russia is now like mondo russia where anything goes and there's all this like it's every second of every day there's something disgusting and insane happening like that doesn't happen in the united states but anyway yes okay. there are dash cams. okay it yeah because I'd, I'd actually never come across that before but mm-hmm. um but yeah they're just watching because and that's really interesting too you know they don't really have any other sources of entertainment so they just like voyeuristically watching their rich fancy bosses you know mm-hmm. just daily exploits a lot of them are very sexual and just sort of getting off of on that um and in the backstory it's sort of behind the other story i should say is that they're the boss is working on this big uh, sculpture of mm. the great of the buddha which is going to be used in this uh, sort of big religious ceremony and yeah while they're watching th- this dash cam footage Something really bad happens, mm-hmm. and the boss does something really shady to someone. And this Buddha statue that's being constructed, uh, presumably to dispose of any evidence. Mm. And from then on, the film becomes sort of a much more se- serious, sort of severe look at the plight of these characters who become caught up in this mess that they, you know, didn't ask for. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first half of the film is, is I mean, the film is really funny. The director, there's a voiceover throughout the film with the director sort of directly speaking to the audience, um, breaking the fourth wall very often. Um, and and when and then when the film 
gets really dark. Um, it gets like really moving and, you know, the, there's like the pickle, you know, meets a very sorry fate and, and the way that's, I guess the way that's sort of shown, I don't, I, I just found it so, just so heartbreaking. Mm. <laughs> no, it's good to have like an emotional reaction to movies sometimes, like where you're just like, I have Right. And it, it just starts off feeling like it, it's going to be so tongue in cheek and so self-aware and so and a bit mm. crass, like the humor is kind of crass. But then it takes this turn where it becomes a very moving drama about the plight of um, these, you know, people homeless and people who the, the most moving thing is people who like when they die, there's very few people who even realize that they're dead. And, mm. and, and so, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, that it is. It is so fascinating to see sort of these global takes on capitalism. Let's say where it is, you know, you do have you get the whole of society, not just a part of society. Which is again, you know, we're t- talking historically. That's something that either films have been about the ultra rich or the ultra poor, and very you know, not really mixing the two. And films like The Great Buddha or Good Manners are definitely interested in the collisions and the inequalities that happen on a daily basis and like in that you have these people who are just not necessarily morally reprehensible but you know uh, all the time but people the the haves and the have-nots that clash is fascinating and the way like the film uses faith as the backdrop and religion Mm. and you know all this is happening against the backdrop of this buddha statue being constructed for the ceremony and uh it, it treats that with such irreverence that I found it really refreshing. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, people are always kind of taking the Buddha's name and talking about sort of, you know, the, the aspects that, you know, pe- people associate with Buddhism a lot. But, you know, it's so cosmetic. Right, right. That uh, that aspect of the film uh, I thought was really interesting. And it never, you know, it doesn't it doesn't like really drive that point home. It's just in the backdrop. And that's what that that's what makes it so such a like compelling satire yeah no and especially in the west there is this weird misconception that buddhism as a religion doesn't do certain things like there are no buddhist terrorists and that they're you know oh it's the good one it's like the sensible one it's like the third way and it's like well no there's still plenty of bad shit that happens in Buddhist countries like don't yeah the venerable uh w is another great film that deals with that exact problem so i'm excited to see this one are there any other films that you want to give a quick shout out to i really want to give a shout out to until the birds return which Mm. again i feel like might get overlooked because it's um it's not very sort of like dramatic it has a very loose structure and there's nothing sort of that doesn't have like big talking points, mm-hmm. but it's this Algerian film and it has sort of three, uh, it has three stories, sort of like an anthology film, but they're all connected uh, and they kind of stumble into each other. And they're just, the, the film kind of traverses Algeria. So it goes from like north to south. There's a road trip in between and it goes through and it has these three characters. Each of them are from a different social class. And they're all, each of them is caught in a different nexus of social relations. And then there's this sort of a dilemma that they have to face, and it, which is sort of of a temporal nature. Um, and so the first story is about this uh, middle-aged wealthy divorcee who witnesses a random act of violence one night and then has, is like pl- plagued by the guilt of not 
not reporting it or not intervening. And then in the second part, that man's uh, chauffeur or driver, this guy named Jalil, drives um, his neighbor and the neighbor's daughter to the site of her wedding. And then there's an unexpected delay and he and the daughter spend a day together and you realize that they have this like secret romantic history. Mm -hmm. And then in the final chapter, um, this uh, sort of neurologist who's vying for a promotion and and is about to get married gets uh, accused by a woman of having been a silent bystander to her gang rape during the Algerian Civil War. And what I found really interesting is that a lot of the film plays out like, I don't know, like a Hong Sang-soo film or, or, you know, maybe like Woody Allen. It's it's characters, it's very ambulatory. It's characters kind of walking and talking and rambling. And some of it might seem almost slight, but then, you know, there's, it is, it, it does talk about the nation and like kind of making, fashioning a narrative about a nation that's just emerging from really bloody uh, and internecine chaos. And um, yeah, I just thought I, it, it does that very well where this bloody, Algeria's kind of bloody history kind of invades these characters' lives. But uh, again, very, in ways that you wouldn't expect and with various degrees of intensity. So yeah, it, you know, it's enjoyable as just a film about people and about characters and their personal lives and their personal problems, but also as a as sort of a film about the making of a national narrative. Mm. So enjoyed that. And I should say, um, it goes off into these non sequiturs that I really enjoyed. So at one point, uh, two characters, they go, they're like walking through a pomegranate farm and then they leave the farm and the camera stays with the farmer and his son and they're talking about the validity of private property. Mm. And then, you know, the characters who left, they come back to pick up something they forgot and then the camera, you know, goes back to their story. Mm. And there's also an interval where out of nowhere, a band of musicians appears and just starts like performing straight into the camera for for a few minutes. <laughs> it's, you know, something that happens in Mila as well. And, mm-hmm. and a few other films have like random musical interludes from the festival. But yeah, so I really enjoyed this, uh, this like random drifting impulse, which also is able to tell a very thoughtful you know, political backstory. Mm. Since you just brought up Mia, it'd be interesting to talk about that um, just quickly. Also because I guess we've been talking about a lot of these films in kind of more general or abstract or theoretical or national ways. But I'm, I'm curious to hear whether whether if you, if you are interested, you know, had particular characters, you know, in, in these films that really stuck with you. And I guess, you know, Mia might, be one or could have been one for me. This is a movie that follows um, just a you know young woman. I, I think she's maybe a teenager on, on the marge, living on the margins. She has a boyfriend who, you know, dirt see, bag seems yeah possibly dirt bag. <laughs> definitely dirt. Definitely bag. dirt. Well, so? I, as I'm proceeding chronologi- chronologically, possibly dirt bag. Then definitely dirtbag. Yeah, yeah, so, sorry. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe you can spot him a mile away. But, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, he, then he seems to work on a ship. A is that what fishing, it, fishing vessel. Fishing yeah. vessel. Um, so that stirs in some more, like, semi, you know, regional color. Um, but I, she would be very compelling uh, just to see how things happen to her. She's hardworking. It's, you know, very much this... You know, very much like a kind of like working class or displaced kind of portrait, and portrait in a very literal sense, because mm. uh, you know there are these very long takes 
um, you know, even by the standards of, of long takes, they feel very long. They felt very long to me mm, yeah, to the too. point where I have to say, it's not that even I was bored by them, but I was impatient with the feeling that there wasn't like a, a, a guiding, um, guiding idea behind some of exactly. these, some of these scenes and yeah. settings and how they were framed. Um, and I kind of felt like the film, I saw this film in Locarno as well last year, and I kind of felt like it got a bit of a pass <laughs> in mm. a way, um, because of that. Yeah, that was kind of a stumbling block for me just and then, you know, for that reason, the musical interlude that, that you right. mentioned just, you know, it felt like very festivaly thing that gets dropped in yeah. to, to kind of have this sudden sort of wry distance. Oh, all this is intended and then just put this in here. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't know. It is it is weird to think that like slow cinema is a brand now and you can just sort of like think that these aesthetics can carry maybe a weak idea or not a wholly full, like not a totally achieved aesthetic idea. It is weird to say that, but I definitely felt what exactly what oh, you're absolutely. talking about too. It's no question. Yeah, yeah. no question. But, but at the same time, I think this is a filmmaker who to be, to be fair to her, she, she is, you know, she has been developing a kind of aesthetic. I mean, she is in a festival called new directors, new films. She is in a festival. <laughs> <They're> all. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah they, they all are new. Directors. I guess hers is sort of a deliberate, like uh, I guess professional as well. I mean, I would like to defend the film a little bit. I'm, I am very convinced by what both of you guys think, but I think for me, just going into the film, not knowing really anything about it, I just walked in and I found it really refreshing that there was no, there was sort of no like drama (laughs) to put it simply. Mm -hmm. And I kept waiting for something really bad to happen. And yes, there is this one bad thing that happens, but there's no, like, there's no like pathos to it. It's not like dealt with in a way that makes it seem really melodramatic. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like films that do this with like women, you know, just like films in which women are just subjected to these like long extended takes and in which it's just about the daily, the banality Mm -hmm. of a woman's life. I don't think that those films always, I don't think the characters are allowed to be, just lead such normal life sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. I, I kept thinking, oh, she's going to be exploited in some way or something like mm-hmm. really bad is going to happen. She's a young teen mom, you know, raising her child on her own, but it just felt so affirming and so wholesome mm. that I, I really appreciated that. And by the end, it does get a little long and there's a lot of lot of scenes of her and her baby which are incredibly cute but definitely a bit aimless but I found that so refreshing because I didn't just every time like as the film went forward with like one scene one long scene after another I just I didn't see any of them coming because I kept thinking it would do something differently and yeah I just I felt like it was so affirming of the human spirit and um yeah it allowed its characters just to be like good and normal and hard-working people yeah, that's my that's my defense. Sure. No, I def- I definitely see that, and 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 the, the actress carries that just in her very being. I mean, I don't know if she's a non non uh, a non professional actor, but um, she just has that kind of guilelessness and wholesome. Yeah, that that's that's a good good word for it too. But at the same time, I just felt like this was a series of unending rooms, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that that's part of the feeling of like stasis that I guess I guess she has. Although she or, doesn't seem to be. I don't know, doesn't seem to be ground down by it particularly, which mm-hmm. is, yeah, true. It is kind of um, affirming of some sort of 
And she keeps moving Spirit. on with her life, you know. She's she keeps like presumably doing better and better even yeah. she's and so there's a lot and there's a few scenes of really her with other women and just I don't just uh, you know helping each other out and sort of bonding and talking about just you know life and I I enjoyed that a lot I think yeah I mean it, it's an it's it's an interesting addition to this you know kind of French art film tradition of of social realism where you're following someone who you expect is is gonna be going through the gears of like social services in France at some point but um, this one kind of works with larger slabs of of of, mm-hmm. of story or of or of events in her life um which which yeah does end up giving her her own space so it's it, it's it's not it's not going to be about grace or will or something of that so uh, you know i know especially it just mila kind of reminds me also of ava uh-huh. the iranian film which you know very different but also this kind of focused look focused kind of coming of age of this young iranian schoolgirl and I was, what did you guys think? I was much less convinced by it. <laughs> I thought it was fine. I thought, I thought it's to debut feature, you know, it felt proficient. It, it, it you know, it, it didn't, didn't feel, um, yeah, like this dramatic discovery of, of, of a new talent necessarily, but it's definitely proficient. This sounds, this is damning with faint praise <laughs> uh, if there yeah, ever was. Actually, I, yeah, I don't have anything really good to say about it, so maybe we should <laughs> Well, um, we can end it there, but before we close, <laughs> it would be great if we each talked about, very briefly, a film that we've seen recently that we liked. I saw, speaking of Brazilian films, I saw Adderley Quiroz's Once There Was Brasilia, which is a continuation of his unique films where they are set in this uh, suburb, basically, as if all suburbs are not sort of created for sort of racist purposes. This is a suburb of Brasilia that where they basically took, they sent all the black people who were living in Brasilia, but um, it's sort of in that, but then it's also dealing with the uh, presidential coup that happened in Brazil, but through this like Afrofuturist docu-fiction thing where, you know, these non-actors are, wearing these weird sort of handmade spacesuits and they're traveling through time in these like lo-fi sets, but they're like, they're on missions and they're, you know, they have to do different information gathering. And this is all just sort of set the suburb of Brasilia that is like kind of run down. And I don't know, I love it. And I think it is, um, I'm always interested to see something by this director. So check it out if it comes around. (laughs) Is that in Art of the Real? Yes. So there you can see it. Yes, you can see it in Art of the Real. I've actually, I've talked about this a couple of times, but not so recently, but I saw Raul Peck's Lumumba. Mm, and yes, I kind of yes. saw it after I saw Black Panther a couple of times. Um, and then I saw Lumumba. And then I also saw his documentary about Lumumba, which yeah. was like made, I think, a few years before the fiction mm-hmm. fiction film, the biopic. Um, yeah, I really liked it, especially as a double feature with Black Panther. Yeah. Um, kind of those themes of anti-colonial resistance and pan-Africanism and, you know, isolationist versus integrationist perspectives towards, you know, whatever imperial struggle. If you want to see them play out, you know, in real life, uh, how they play out in real life and in history, you know, it's a it's a very fascinating look at that. And the CIA comes off looking much worse yeah. than Martin Freeman's character. 
Um, <laughs> as they should. Um, as they yes. should. <laughs> um, yeah, and I like that. And the reason I saw it also because, was because I saw the young Karl Marx. Yes. yes. Which I which I enjoyed a lot. I loved Despite it. myself, I think. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a little bit, it, it was a little tedious. But it was like, you know, like Shakespeare in love for someone who's interested in, in Marx's you know, theory. Marx's theory. Yeah. Um, and, and Lumumba and the young Karl Marx both have this similar, I, I thought like a discursive and a little bit of a tedious style, but um, very appropriate for what the films are trying to do, which is like bringing right. these really, this is more true of the young Karl Marx than Lumumba, but bringing... Um, very sort of theoretical, the theoretical aspect of revolution to life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that yeah. was something I enjoyed recently. Sure. I saw Ready Player One. Oh. And I uh, I liked it. I thought it was a, a, a just a strange kind of concerted mess. How Not, many references did you count? Well, my favorite one was the T2 one, of course. I think there are actually two T2 ones. Um, so T4? That's T2 <laughs> times Squared. two, carry the four. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, and I don't mean a mess that, uh, you know, Spielberg botched it. I mean, I think it's, he, he it's, it, um, it, not in that sense. It's just, it's, it's so strange to watch a movie. Um, maybe you've heard of it's Ready Player One. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's so strange to watch a movie that's more or less just canceling itself out as it's going along because mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a movie about people in the future everyone's stuck in virtual reality fantasies because their real lives are so terrible um nothing that sounds so far-fetched so what far-fetched it would about? never happen it would never happen we're not already laying the groundwork for this um <laughs> and no at all it has not been already demonstrated that through social media and cell phone use but anyway <laughs> And but but of course you know the ultimate moral will be that you should live in the real world and enjoy real things. So it's you know it, it, but it doesn't come across as like kind of just run of the mill hypocrisy about being true to yourself in like a totally vapid film. Because Spielberg is such an amazing blockbuster technician, there is a genuine feeling of um, the overwhelming nature of that that like virtual reality environment and um, is so consuming, um, even if it does get tedious, because unfortunately it has this quest structure, which is just so boring and a real like disappointment. But that's that's the concession <laughs> to, to, to the type of movie it is. But it's, you know, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's kind of remarkable. And it does make you it, it's it's a de- I found a, de- a depressing an exhilaratingly depressing blockbuster. That's, <laughs> that's my poor quote because because <laughs> you just you're yeah, yeah you're just watching this you're just watching this and and it's it's I don't know I I feel like it's yeah it's 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 an aging Spielberg who has made Lincoln and the Post mm. you know making an older movie and and I, you know but can't shake what he's you know the, the, the reality of it I mean um, the BFG was different bag altogether but anyway that's what i saw ready player one quite curious to see how it, how it does um, at the box office at the box office which brings us full circle <laughs> yes i was about to say this is definitely the highest grossing film that we have talked about so that's far. right yes so congratulations you win nothing <laughs> well thank you both for coming this was excellent thank you yeah, so much thanks for having me You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. 
Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app.